Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Keep politics out of sport, echo multitude of politicians every time an athlete says or does something inconvenient. But politics has always been a part of sport. From the ancient Olympiad, conceived as a breather from conflict between city-states, to Jesse Owen destroying claims of a master race in front of that angry little man with a peculiar moustache in 1936 Munich. So is it possible to keep politics out of sport? And is it even desirable? My guest today is the perfect partner with which to chew over these questions. Jules Boykoff teaches political science at Pacific University in Oregon and specializes in sports politics. He's the author of four books on the Olympic Games, including Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, and most recently, No Olympians Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports. Welcome, Dr. Boykoff. Great to be with you. Thanks. Now, let us start with football, soccer to mm-hmm. you, which occupies much of our time this side of the Atlantic, with the Euro 2020 tournament taking place, albeit a bit delayed. Uh, it turns out you used to be a professional soccer player up to international level, so I need explain <laughs> nothing to you. Absolutely. I'm glad to have about soccer anytime. The England team has made a point of taking the knee before each match. Most opposition players have joined in. Most fans applaud, but some fans boo. Is sport a unifying or a dividing force? Well, I think it's both, depending on who you're talking to. I think with spikier issues and important issues like racism, it can be the dividing force that ultimately maybe leads toward a unification or a reunification around new norms for the issue. And so I think that's kind of what we're witnessing right now. It is upsetting some people, mainly the people who are benefiting from the white power structure. Let's be honest about it. And so um, there's going to be a backlash. And I think that is exactly what we're witnessing right now, whether we're talking about the Euros, whether we're talking about the National Basketball Association and fans throwing things at players, uh, whether we're talking about the French Open and Naomi Osaka, we're talking about a backlash Hmm. from the predominantly white power structure's reassertion of power over predominantly black athletes and people who are working in solidarity with them. Hmm. Now, some right-wing politicians uh, over here and over there, I know, are trying to absorb this into a more general culture war narrative to suggest that fans are right to boo this wokeness and athletes should use their platform for nothing other than sport. And they have an audience. Should this worry us or do you have any sympathy with the view? Is sport something escapist that is better left sort of unspoiled by seriousness, I guess? Mm. Well, first, I do not have sympathy for that viewpoint. That viewpoint all too often comes out of a position of privilege from people who do not want to see the status quo change. I think that's definitely what's going on here. I think if you look at what some of these politicians are actually saying, they're saying, we want things to just stay the same. And we want you to shut up and play. And we (laughs) view you as our entertainment and nothing more. We don't view you necessarily as whole human beings who might have political opinions, who might have views that might push back against that status quo. And so, no, I have zero sympathy for that. And it may be in part because, you know, I'm a political scientist. And, you know, one of our classic definitions from the political scientist Harold Laswell of politics is about who gets what, when, where, and how. 
And if you start thinking about politics from that perspective, sports is eminently political because there are certain people that are benefiting from sports and certain people who are not benefiting from sports. Mm. Just just now, as you were talking, you you brought uh, to my head the fact that this is actually not dissimilar to uh, initial reactions to the Me Too movement, where some people were saying, you know, just your job is to uh, sort of just be there and look pretty rather than have views and opinions on how women should be treated. Um, the the International Olympic Committee has banned taking the knee. Well, actually, that's not entirely accurate. They have simply reaffirmed the rule under which political statements are banned, and that includes the knee. But this happened after a pretty misleading poll of athletes. Um, was that a smart move, or are they storing up trouble? I mean, ultimately, if athletes in large enough numbers start doing it, what can they do? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, just to rewind, there's a rule in the Olympic Charter, currently called Rule 50, that, as you say, outlaws expressions of politics at the Olympic Games in venues or around venues. So it's extraordinarily capacious for starters. And in January 2020, the International Olympic Committee doubled down and it said explicitly that it prohibited gestures of a political nature, like they said, a hand gesture or kneeling. Well, they were obviously targeting particular athletes, some of whom from the United States had just engaged in those very activities at the Pan American Games. One took a knee, race in Bowdoin, the fencer, and one put a fist in the air. Gwen Berry, the hammer thrower. And so it was an obvious response to what they were doing. Then, interestingly, to me at least, in December of that year, 2020, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, they announced that they would not sanction U.S. athletes who protest peacefully and respectfully in support of racial and social justice. And so it basically set up this showdown. And then this year, in April, the International Olympic Committee said they kind of pushed back and they said slogans like Black Lives Matter will not be allowed on athlete apparel at the Olympics. And they basically doubled down. And so this is rooted in a history of repression mm. of athletes. The only reason why Rule 50 came along was because of that classic moment in 1968 when John Carlos and Tommy Smith thrust their fists into the Mexico City sky while Peter Norman, a white sprinter from Australia, stood by in solidarity wearing a button that said Olympic Project for Human Rights on it. After that, the International Olympic Committee ramped up its efforts to suppress dissent, and that's where Rule 50 came from in the first place. This whole thing is rooted in power, but it's also rooted in hypocrisy. Um, after all, if you look at the Olympic Channel, which is the official television channel of the International Olympic Committee, they have segments that celebrate John Carlos and Tommy Smith today that actually applaud their courage. Well, if somebody were to do what Smith and Carlos mm. did at these upcoming Olympics in Tokyo, they would be punished for it. So there's just an incredible hypocrisy ringing through much of what the International Olympic Committee does, to be honest, but certainly in this case. Now, on a, on a sort of parallel track is the potential cancellation of the Olympics because of the pandemic. Instead of that being a public health question, it has become a political one. So the IOC appears to me to be daring the Japanese government to cancel and vice versa because of the contractual issues uh, involved. 
Who will win this game of chicken, do you think? Or will neither side back down and the Olympics will go ahead? Well, the International Olympic Committee holds the cards. They hold the important cards. If you look at the host city contract, which people in Tokyo signed back in 2013, it explicitly states that the International Olympic Committee has the power to cancel the Olympics, not Tokyo organizers, not medical officials in Tokyo who might be concerned about a global pandemic. And so they really do hold the cards. They also have a huge incentive to press ahead with the Olympics, an economic incentive, because around nine out of every $10 that flows into IOC coffers comes from two sources, broadcaster revenues, which is about 73%, and corporate sponsors, which is around 18% of their revenues. And so they're perfectly happy to have a made-for-TV event with nobody in the stands, so long as the money continues to flow into their coffers. And so I think those are the main reasons why you're mm. seeing the International Olympic Committee ram ahead, even though 80% plus of the population in Japan do not want the Olympics this summer in a place where around 4% of the population is vaccinated only in Japan. And so it's remarkable that the IOC is showing such hubris, but it comes out of a sort of self-preservation mode of looking out for their own economic mm. interests. Jules, how did we get to this weird place where such a huge event on which so much depends, not just sporting achievement, but, you know, investment for entire infrastructure projects, businesses, tourism revenue, it's basically left to the contractual discretion of a pretty opaque organization. I think you're right to really focus in on the organization of the International Olympic Committee because they sit at the center of what happens with the Olympics and they help us understand how the Olympics became so big. Scholars of the Olympics talk about something called gigantism where the Olympics just exploded in size in terms of number of sports, in terms of number of events. And at the center of that decision was, of course, the International Olympic Committee. It's also become a massive capitalist juggernaut. That changed in the 1980s, again, with the International Olympic Committee at the helm. In the 80s, they decided to bring in a bunch of corporate sponsors to sort of increase the money flow, but also make that money flow more consistent. That change in the 1980s led to what we have today, where we have these 15 or so worldwide partners of the Olympics that fork over millions of dollars to make the Olympics happen. Also during that era, broadcast revenues started to go through the roof. And so you could see that the International Olympic Committee's economic boat was being floated by these two areas. But it, it came at the consequence of really increasing the size and the commercialism around the Olympic Games. And so I don't think we can really mm. talk about the Olympics today without talking about capitalism and how they're fully ingrained in capitalism and in some ways at the mercy of capitalism. But there's no question that the International Olympic Committee is essentially a profit-gobbling cartel. It is one of the most pervasive yet least accountable sport infrastructures in the world. And that's really saying something if you think about some of these other sport infrastructures like FIFA that uh, governs football. <laughs> yes, that's true. And so, and, I, and I'm being specific. I'm not being polemical when I call them a profit gobbling cartel. I mean, let me just give one quick example. If you look at the amount of money that athletes from major sports around the world take in from their sports, uh, you see a huge discrepancy between those athletes and Olympians. So there was a really important study done out of Ryerson University in Canada 
that compared the percentage of revenues that athletes from the English Premier League of football, uh, the NBA, the National Basketball Association in the United States, the NFL, the NHL, major sports leagues like yeah. that. In those major sports leagues, it was anywhere between 45 to 60% of the revenues went directly into the pockets of athletes. In the Olympics, it's 4.1%. So a huge difference there. And that's why I'm wow. saying the IOC is a profit gobbling cartel. They have almost no oversight and they pretty much do things as they please while at the same time often acting like some kind of aggrieved party. We need not fall for their tricks anymore. Uh, they've gotten away with it for a long time. And that's why you're seeing athletes starting to really talk seriously about organizing as unions. That's why those other leagues are doing so well in large part is because they have unions backing them. Mm. Athletes often prove themselves to be hugely effective campaigners. And I don't know if that's why, because they do it rarely or if it's, purely because of their public profile. I don't know, for instance, if you're aware of the exploits of one Marcus Rashford Absolutely. over here. I suspect you are, since he's now BFFs with Obama. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was wondering, is there, is there a danger to effectively contracting out policy to relatively inexperienced, unelected celebrities? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I do think there are potential downsides, especially if that athlete doesn't have a lot of support and training. And today's athletes, especially somebody with the stature of Marcus Rashford, uh, can get the people around him to get the information that he needs. He seems like a very smart guy to begin with and committed to the causes that he's involved with. And that helps a lot. But And he's doing wonderful work. And I commend him 100%. I do not believe that every single athlete should be an athlete activist. I mean, you mentioned before that I come out of a, a background of sports and I cringe to think at what I would have might have said as a 19 year old, if somebody said, okay, you're on the plane for the U S Olympic team. Why don't you have something to say about politics? Oh my gosh. I, I can't even imagine what I would have said as a 19 year old. So one, I have enormous respect for those athletes who do come out with coherent arguments and coherent programs. And two, I don't think this is for everybody. I think, though, that athletes do have a special cachet in society because they're not necessarily labeled political to begin with, which kind of allows them to slide into the back door of politics in a way that is a little bit disarming, perhaps, to a general population. Not to mention the fact they're already so popular among the general population that what they say could have enormous reverberations inside of society. And certainly that's what we're seeing with people like Marcus Rashford, um, but others as well. Naomi Osaka, the great tennis player, has been so influential in discussing Black Lives Matter and its importance, and just so many other athletes right now. I think that's why we're living in what I think we could fairly categorize as the athlete empowerment era, where you've got some of these athletes who are financially insulated who have people around them who are giving them good, solid information, and they're willing to go put themselves on the line. It's a really exciting time to be alive when it comes to mm. athlete activism. Mm. Do you think this is a it's a it's a little bit of a chicken and egg? So, do you think this is a symptom of cynicism about politics? Pre people just trust non politicians over politicians, or does it also become a barrier for traditional politicians? In that, you know, a person could say X and no one cares, but if a footballer says exactly the same thing, they have so much more media appeal that suddenly it becomes 
attractive. I mean, there was a there was a poll in the UK recently where Rashford was seen as more effective at holding the government to account than the opposition or even the national media, and not by a little, but by a lot. So I'm just wondering, given the Trump experience, is there a hope or a danger that such a figure might suddenly burst through our politics like either a benevolent or malevolent asteroid? Hmm. Yes. Well, coming to you from the United States, where politicians are tremendously unpopular, and also where the media is taking its punches as well, I think that definitely sets the stage for a principled athlete activism to have a great deal more effect, at least in the short term, to affecting the ways that we're talking about these things. Still, though, at least here, and I think there as well, you do need the politicians to enact the ideas that might be emerging from athlete activism. And you also need the media to proliferate the ideas in a fair and reasonable way that people can then understand them and move on them. And so I think there's a certain symbiosis between a lot of what we're seeing with the rise of athlete activism and politicians, both sympathetic and unsympathetic. They, in a way, need to work together to make some of these policy changes that are Mm. ever so needed at this moment. Athletes who are political uh, are told to keep quiet and stick to their sport. But Naomi Osaka, which you've mentioned a couple of times, is penalized for wanting to keep quiet and stick to her sport. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do so many... Uh, people expect athletes to just be ventriloquist dummies with no opinions or personalities. Is it a feature of that capitalism you were talking about that, you know, these these organizations think, well, you've taken the sponsorship and you've taken the prize money, so we want you to perform. You belong to us in a sense. I do think that capitalism has a whole lot to do with it in at least a couple ways. For starters, Those who run and own these leagues want to maintain the status quo. Oftentimes, those who are telling athletes to just shut up and play are also milking the Olympic machine or the professional sports machine with both hands. In other words, they're making money hand over fist, and they just want to keep things the same way. Another group of people that tends to push back on these activists are just the everyday average working person fan who is experiencing extraordinarily extraordinary alienation in the face of capitalism and just needs a space to sort of decompress. And I think that can help explain to a certain degree why they might say to, to athletes, oh, just I want to watch sports. My life is already very difficult. I'm working one, two, maybe even three jobs that are tremendously difficult under neoliberal capitalism. Just give me a space where I can enjoy life a minute. And so I think that absolutely capitalism is, is at the root of the pushback. But also, of course, hand in hand goes racism. A lot of the athletes who've been speaking out are athletes of color. And I think we'd be doing ourselves a massive disservice if we didn't also talk about how race plays a key role here and how a lot of the fans that are pushing back and Mm. a lot of the elected officials who are pushing back are white people. And they are feeling ill at ease for a variety of reasons having to do with the economic situation. And they see athletes gaining more power and influence and they push back against that. And so I would also just say, you know, the, the, these bans that are being placed on athletes, whether it's the International Olympic Committee or other groups, in a way, they actually only empower athlete activists who are still willing to speak out. I mean, after all, there's more power in standing up against the powerful 
than a power than power in a protest that is essentially sanctioned by those powerful people. There's more power in standing up against those who are disagreeing with you than just going along with the flow. I mean, is it really a protest if you've been granted permission to protest? I mean, it's kind of a, a sportier version of the question, if a tree falls in an empty forest, does it actually make a sound? <laughs> now, let me throw you a curveball since we're talking of sport. Let me use that sporting analogy. <laughs> is there also um, money-making power to the right causes? So are athletes also beginning to switch on to the fact that there are companies out there who are looking for people who share the right sort of sets of values and that actually there may be um, money to be made? Absolutely, that's what's happening. There, there's no question about it. And we need look no further than what's happened with Colin Kaepernick, the player in the National Football League who took a knee and then was basically white-balled out of the <laughs> league. And then who signed him to a contract? Nike did. After all, they knew that their younger population that uh, buy their products support Kaepernick and think Kaepernick's interesting and even maybe has a cool factor to him, right? So um, there's definitely something going on with that, with these corporations that are basically taking advantage, if you will, of athlete activism. I mean, capitalism's strength, perhaps its greatest strength is its ability to co-opt and domesticate opposition and to transubstantiate criticism into a wide variety of new products. And I think mm. That's kind of at play here with this rise of athlete activism. That's certainly the potential. The question is, will that process defang some of this athlete activism? That's my one concern. We actually have some real radical stances that are being taken by athlete activists. And I'd hate for capitalism to defang those important stances in this crucial moment in our history. That's a, a fascinating uh, question to leave this on. Uh, Jules, our time, alas, has gone all too quickly. Thank you for your time and for your knowledge on this utterly beguiling subject. I could talk to you for ages. Thank you. My pleasure, Alex. Thanks for the conversation. And listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And you can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. This is Alex Andreo saying over and out. Bunker was presented by Alex Andreo. The producer is Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Yelena Sofronovich and Jacob Archbold. Audio production was from me, Robin Lehman, and the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>